I know it may not seem like it sometimes, but I really do try my best not to cross-contaminate too much between my podcasts. That being said, if you're an avid listener of Danger Close or even an occasional listener to Fright Pub, you will undoubtedly have heard me pop off at one time or another about movies that tout themselves as being based on a true story. When you see this in a horror movie, you should basically just strap on your Gallagher tarp because it's all but a solemn vow that a hurricane of horseshit is about to make landfall. With war films, it's a little different. There have been so many wars and so much above and beyond the Call of Duty heroism that it's tough not to draw from real events when you're making one. Still, proceed with caution, because there's so much propaganda and myth-making and good old-fashioned Hollywood aggrandizement to sift through that you can't ever be sure how much of what you're watching is fact versus fiction. Today's film has been on our to-do list for a long time, and not only because on more than one occasion we've had someone ask if we're a podcast focused on just this one specific film. We have a lot of Australian listeners out there, and we've heard your requests for doing some more Anzac-centric fare. And this movie has been mentioned on more than one occasion, so we figured, why the hell not? Well, there are a few reasons why the hell not, it turns out. Not to tip our collective hand too much, but when you make a war movie about a real-life battle that has mostly been overlooked in popular culture and even in the history books outside of Australia, and you're depicting real people and using their real names, you have a duty to keep things as close to the facts as possible, and that duty goes further than the tactics employed and the logistical layout of the battlefield. If you're trying to shine a light on a piece of forgotten history, you need to be mindful of where you're casting shadows. War is hell. People make films about it, and we love to talk about them. So crack open a cold one, never mind your trigger discipline, and share your plans to marry your sweetheart back home because that never ends badly for anyone in a trope salad like this, with a Marine veteran, a film critic, and a theater director. As we pull on our shitting pants to dissect what went right from everything that went wrong with this borderline character assassination of a film with an admittedly catchy title from 2019, Danger Close, The Battle of Long Tan. Call it in. It's danger close. Welcome to Danger Close, a war film podcast. My name is Dan, and I'm here as usual with my partners. Katie. And Liam. And uh, today we're coming back at you after a quick break. Hopefully you guys enjoyed... What do we put out again? Oh, Independence, Independence Day. Day. How dare you forget? I'm sorry. It's just I'm <laughs> checking the calendar and thinking about timing and such. It was on Independence Day. True. And that was uh, that was a fun episode where we all got to gush, which is pretty rare. So hopefully you guys enjoyed that. So today, speaking of the calendar, today we wanted to make up for the fact that uh, we didn't have a release that was New Zealand and Australia related for Anzac Day, which was a few months ago. And so we looked at our list and found an Anzac film that dealt with Australia and New Zealand. 
old term. It's now a generic for the tight relationships between Australia and New Zealand, like calling someone digger, which is World War One slang that's hung on. So Anzac is now more of a general term. And it came pretty highly recommended, and a lot of people have been asking us to do it. What is it, Liam? It's called Danger Close. <laughs> we did it. We finally did it. We fucking did it, guys. We did the movie. <laughs> Say the Wait, line, Bart. Is this, is this the final boss? Are we like at the pinnacle of the <laughs> no. podcast? We finally got to it. <laughs> We're just getting started, baby. <laughs> so we may be alternatively referring to this as the Battle of Long Tan, which was the colon title that it originally came out with because that'll be a lot less confusing than saying danger close all the time but it's also not that on amazon anymore like the movie doesn't have that any longer yeah i think the modern version of this film is just called danger close but the original title was danger close the battle of long tan and we're going to talk about long tan a lot because clearly this is based on a real historical event and we have some great research for you today where we will be delving into that we had three researchers today which i'll mention a little bit But uh, to get us started, as usual, here is Katie with our mission briefing. Danger Close is set in 1966 in Vietnam with a company of Australian and New Zealand soldiers as they fight a fever-pitched battle near a rubber plantation in Long Tan. It is based on real events, and the majority of the actors with speaking roles in the film are playing actual soldiers. It is a brutal battle with waves of Viet Cong soldiers vastly outnumbering the Aussies and the Kiwis. The film offers no explanation for why the troops are there. Instead, it focuses on the battle as it happened, trying to coherently dramatize a very complex military situation in an understandable and palatable form for general audiences. With a budget of $25 million and a box office of only $2 million, Damn. mostly due to it only getting a limited release because of the assumed lack of appeal outside of its home countries, Critics were generally mixed. The film's intense focus on what exactly happened to the Australian and New Zealand soldiers, and only them, without any interrogation of the reasons for the war or an attempt to humanize the other side, was both praised and disliked. That single-mindedness allows the film to relay the real difficulty of the situation, but the choice to have the Vietnamese be essentially one faceless entity felt regressive and problematic in today's day and era. They also took issue with the lack of characterization of pretty much everyone except Major Harry Smith, saying the film felt hollow because of that lack. However, there was plenty of praise for Travis Fimmel as Smith and the subject matter, so rarely touched on in film from this perspective, was considered well worth covering. We've watched a few movies about the Vietnam War at this point, and Danger Close definitely has some similarities to those movies. So... Let's get it out of the way and then probably continue to talk about it throughout the rest of the show and start us off with what films does this one remind us of? Liam? Um, yeah, I definitely got some uh, some strong We Were Soldiers vibe. Not to give anybody flashbacks to a time that we shit on a movie horribly, but it had a lot of that flavor to it. Also, uh, and maybe it was because of the... Uh, how new it was and the frame rates that it was shot with uh, did get some Saving Private Ryan vibes in the way the the actual film stock looked at points. It was like recording so many frames at once that you missed that motion blur. And that was one of those things that I, I didn't necessarily love about Saving Private Ryan. But one thing this movie does is that it utilizes that in its slow motion scenes 
So it's shooting that high frame rate through the whole movie, which sometimes makes it choppy. But then when they go in and put it into slow motion, they have all of those frames to do the slow motion with. Right. The slow motion is like smooth. It's super smooth. That's true. And I like that when, when you shoot a movie in like 24 frames per second, and then after the fact, you try to make it slow motion, it looks like shit. Anytime you look at slow motion in a Kenneth Branagh movie, this is how it's done. It's like the slow motion is always like after the fact, but this, it was almost like they recorded it for the slow motion and then the rest of it looks shitty. I don't know. It's a weird thing, but it also reminded me an awful lot of the outpost in that limited point of view, that limited perspective that it offers. And I guess some of the grittiness that they were trying to go for and all the people were playing real people. And it was, you know, tremendous odds, one-sided conflict that kind of dynamic and feel. Those were the movies that it reminded me of that we've already seen. Dan? Yeah, interesting you brought up Saving Private Ryan, because I thought for sure when I figured Katie was going to ask this question that we were all going to think about the same exact film, so I'm glad there was some diversity there. I don't have anything new to bring to the table, but I agree with instantly in different ways for different reasons. This reminded me of The Outpost, Full Metal Jacket, and We Were Soldiers. I think. The Outpost was the singular focus on the tactical element and the combat and how overall the combat felt realistic. It wasn't super Hollywood. I really hated the choice of dramatic music and slow motion. I thought that this one of the main gripes I have with this film is that it suffered from over dramatization when it was not needed because if you read this story or listen to interviews from the soldiers who were there this is an incredibly dramatic situation that i think doesn't need any kind of embellishing whatsoever other than just maybe the cinematography so i thought that all the slow-mo scenes were like way too long way too frequent and way too like heavily painted with music but the focus on the one small base and them being attacked and not really talking about the bigger war and some of the visual style of the film reminded me a lot about the outpost. Full Metal Jacket, I mean, generally you've got Hueys flying around over the jungle and it's got the Vietnam feel. I have no idea how they thought that they were going to get away with using Nancy Sinatra's song in this and like that not millions of people were going to immediately be like, why are you like straight up stealing from Full Metal Jacket when there are... Yeah. This is like one of the best decades for American music or music in general, like ever, especially rock. And it's like, why don't you just pick something different? There's a billion CCR songs you could have picked that are kind of associated with the time period, but haven't been used in a Vietnam movie yet. So I thought we... Jackie and I both looked at each other like, what? Why are you using this song? That was kind of lame, but sadly that did make me think of Full Metal Jacket. And then We Were Soldiers. So if you go back to We Were Soldiers, and again, if you don't like us shitting on movies, you probably didn't like the We Were Soldiers episode. I will explain this in more thorough detail later, but I'm going to shit on this movie really hard, and it's because it deserves it and for the right reasons, not just because I disliked it. Spoiler alert. Not the reason I shit on things. Right. Yeah, not because Liam isn't feeling it. Um <laughs> <laughs> I gave that movie a good score on Fright Pub. You shut your face. What was that? Dr. Caligari? Is that yeah, it was the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. I was watching. I'm like, it's not a five. It's not a five. But it did sell me on watching a silent film from 1920. So very good episode of Fright Pub. Very go good. If you want to. However, getting back to what we're talking about today. <laughs> Just wasn't feeling a five. I'm sorry. 
one of the main problems we saw with We Were Soldiers was a problem of omission with the characters, meaning that they really didn't delve into the background of the characters to make you feel like they were real people. And so when they died and were shot and go through all this dramatic stuff, you know, you were kind of like, meh, because you didn't really have a connection with the characters, something that the outpost actually did better. Well, and also in We Were Soldiers, they all died with like, their last line was like, oh, I'm glad I got to die for my country. I don't want to rehash everything I hated about We Were Soldiers. There are some corny lines and some <laughs> bad so writing. much, so much to hate. But what I'm trying to compare is what's missing in the characters. And in We Were Soldiers, it was omission. There was not enough there for me. Like, I felt they should have written more into the characters. In this, and again, I'll shut up in a second and, and we'll pass it off to Katie. But in this, the problem was that they mischaracterized a ton of stuff, both in the character's actual character like as people and in things that they did not do in real life and so they end up really disparaging a lot of these characters in ways that they a don't deserve and b these are real people some of whom 18 of them died in this battle and i not for a second am going to give a film a break on disparaging men and women sometimes, in this case, men who died in combat doing what they were supposed to be doing when they were 21, and their parents might watch this movie, and that might be the last depiction of their son that they ever see in, in like a, in, in a film. So, I had a big problem with the way the characters were depicted, and I'll expound on that a little bit later, and our research kind of backs that up. Katie, what about you? I'm in the same boat as you guys. Um, I didn't immediately think of The Outpost, but I did... Uh, full metal jacket, mostly for the beginning and kind of the lackadaisical attitude that Private Large has. He is, you know, drinking beer while accidentally shoots off his gun. You know, he's just he's just there doing what he has to, which is kind of the attitude in the beginning of Full Metal Jacket. And then absolutely we were soldiers. I mean, oh my God, there's so many comparisons to be made about this with that film and most of them not very good. I did like this better than We Were Soldiers, for sure, but that might have been because I'm not Australian, and this was, you know, a first-time story for me, so I would have more patience with it than a Mel Gibson movie. It had a lot of tropes as well. That was the other thing that I noticed. This just feels like a Vietnam movie, and I've seen quite a few. There were also some, we haven't talked about it yet, but there was also um, some platoon flashbacks for me and seeing that mm -hmm. not that it's a bad thing but it can be and it didn't necessarily do this movie any favors because it detracts i think from the rest of the story that's actually going on here that they don't really much talk about like dance <laughs> the actual real story of these men so I want to give a huge shout out to our researchers today who really brought their A game and allowed us to learn about different aspects of this and really were instrumental in us being able to have a better rounded conversation, especially since this isn't about America or American troops and it really gave us some background. Peter Cox, who also does Danger Close Flightline and usually talks about aircraft and technical stuff like that, did a great write-up on the background of Australian culture, reference being invaded by 
Southeast Asian countries and Russia potentially and sort of their fears going back into history. It's short, but it gives you kind of an insight into Australian culture and how they felt about war and conscription in general. I probably won't talk too much about his stuff in the episode directly, but we'll post it on our surplus ordinance. It's well worth reading. Kyle, our longtime contributor who also, uh, when Kyle does posts in the Facebook group, he usually does our mechanized posts. So he'll do vehicles and tanks. And in this one, he covered a lot of the weapons, vehicles, etc. that they were using in the film. I'll reference some of them, but again, we'll post this all so you can look it up. I'm especially grateful to Micah, our uh, Army Infantry Captain, who not only read five books about this battle and did a seminar paper on this in college as part of his military schooling about sort of doctrine and use this battle as an example to compare it to American strategy and tactics versus the Australians at the time. But he also timestamped the film and really broke down kind of what was accurate and what was not. So here's a little bit of background on Australia getting into Vietnam and then how 6RAR, which I'll describe later, but that's the Royal Australian Regiment got involved in this. As South Vietnam's armed conflict with North Vietnam began escalating in the early 1960s, the United States perceived the struggle in terms of communist expansion into Southeast Asia and began committing military forces to assist the South Vietnamese government. Australia, already accustomed to anti-communist military intervention from the Malayan Emergency of 1948 to 1960, and seeking to remain a relevant ally, joined America by sending a small number of military advisors to South Vietnam in 1962. Australia held a key advantage over the other foreign powers it was joining in defense of South Vietnam in that its armed forces possessed a wealth of experience in jungle fighting, from Burma, New Guinea, and the Philippines to their support of Commonwealth involvement in the Malayan Emergency up until 1960, Australia had been involved directly in jungle fighting almost continuously from the Second World War until they began to send advisors to Vietnam in 1962. This experience would go on to play a key part in how they fought and equipped their soldiers going into this conflict. The important thing to note here is that the Australian government and military leadership had a different overall strategy than the Americans. The Australians focused military efforts on counterinsurgency, while the Americans focused on large-scale search-and-destroy operations. If you go back and listen to We Were Soldiers or even Full Metal Jacket, it was really a war of attrition for us, and it was about stacking up dead bodies. We were trying to kill as many Vietnamese forces as we could and win the war through sheer volume, which is, again, not what the Australians were doing. As a result of this dichotomy and Australia's political desire to share a significant load of the war effort, the U.S. gave Australia its own area of responsibility. The Phuc Thuy province on South Vietnam's southern coast. If you look at the map, and I'll post some in the surplus ordinance, this is a region just southeast of Saigon on the coast. To fulfill this obligation, Australia established the first Australian task force, or uh, first ATF, in April 1966. First ATF's primary mission was to maintain control over Phuc Thuy and support U.S. formations in neighboring provinces if necessary. The main enemy in Phuc Thuy was VC guerrillas. The VC, or Viet Cong, were an organized guerrilla force commanded and supported by the North Vietnamese Army, or MVA. They conducted insurgent attacks and small-scale conventional operations in South Vietnam while the MVA fought near the border and the Central Highlands. To this end, 1ATF's leadership established their main base of operations on the rubber plantation of Nui Dat 
and their logistics center at Vungtau. One ATF chose Nui Dat for its central location to the province's main population. Key to Australian counter-guerrilla doctrine, Nui Dat's location allowed the Australians to spread influence in urban centers and isolate the VC from the population. Essentially, the Australian strategy here was to clear out a four-kilometer radius area around that base in this province of all civilians. They bulldozed villages, they removed and relocated all these civilians and made it like a military exclusion zone, essentially. Aside from the problems with that, what that did strategically for the military is that now you had an area where if you saw any Vietnamese, they were automatically considered combatants because you had gone through the effort of clearing out all civilians from the area. And that's one of the approaches that the Australians took. The Battle of Long Tan is the story of a small professional force defeating a far numerically superior enemy. Vastly outnumbered, Delta Company 6RAR relied on their training and indirect fire support from their headquarters to survive. By utilizing their own tactics, techniques, and procedures which mirror 21st century US doctrine, Delta Company not only survived but dealt such a significant blow to the Viet Cong in Phuc Thuy province that they never amassed as much combat power against the Australian army again. So, in this film, what is this force that is coming against them? Do we know is this strictly Viet Cong? Is this NVA with some Viet Cong in the mix? Did those two forces intertwine a lot? Like were they usually at the same places or were you usually dealing with one or the other? That's a good question. Uh, I'm going to reference a documentary here called The Battle of Long Tan from 2006. You can find it on YouTube. Highly, highly recommend it. They explain a lot of this, including the structure of the Australian military and a lot of the tactical stuff with what I swear sounds like real radio chatter recorded from the time. Sharp Radio Smith. But I can't imagine how they would have possibly gotten that recorded, so I feel like it might be a reenactment, but if it is, it's it sounds so real. It's real good. It's loud, it's violent, it's hard to understand. It sounds like really real radio calls. They actually do very briefly interview a couple of Vietnamese soldiers who were in full uniform. So I feel like they're career officers that stayed in and were like still in the military and 40 years later or whatever. Again, it's from 2006. And so they actually explain that a little bit. They don't go into detail on what kind of operations, who was doing what. But basically, there were three fighting forces in North Vietnam. The Viet Cong, which were irregular forces not signed up in the army, right? Not exactly paramilitary, like you'd think of. I imagine they still had leadership and structure and they were organized. So I think paramilitary is not a bad way to describe it, but they didn't wear military uniforms. They usually wore the quote unquote black pajamas that were right. well known right. and were probably more flexible and able to blend into the population much more easily. You do see this Vietnam trope of soldiers, especially U.S. soldiers, but soldiers going into a village and they're aggressive and suspicious of every civilian they see because that's the thing is you can toss aside some black pajamas real quick and put on some regular farmer clothes and nobody knows that you're a vc right and then the two more military forces were the north vietnamese regular army which was a national force and then you also had local army organizations and so you had local forces 
as well as a national force. I don't know if those two wore the same uniform style or whether they wore two slightly different ones. But generally speaking, I believe that the armies were in green while the Viet Cong were usually in black. If they were wearing something, again, they probably sometimes just wore regular civilian clothes. But someone can write in and correct us on that. Uh, when you see the beginning of this firefight, which is actually Delta Company running into six or seven not tactically prepared, kind of relaxed soldiers, you know, like the rifles are on their shoulders, which is accurate. Mm -hmm. That's really what happened. They report green uniforms on the radio. So those to me, I would guess those are either North Vietnamese regulars or local soldiers, but they're part of the regular uh, forces. Yeah, it seemed like most of what they were dealing with were green uniforms. Mm -hmm. I don't know yeah. if I ever saw any black uniforms at all. You did. Well, you, there were a, a couple few folks, the two ladies who were dragging the one soldier away. Mm -hmm. They were in black and had like the straw hats. I don't know what they're called, but it's like, I don't know if it's inaccurate, but it's like the stereotypical Viet Cong hat. Like whenever you see somebody who's in the Viet Cong depicted in movies, it's like the black clothes and then that hat. It's called, and I'm going to butcher this because I don't speak anything like Vietnamese, <laughs> non la or leaf hat. Oh, leaf hat. Interesting. Mm -hmm. I mean, I wouldn't call it a trope. I just think it's really common. But if you think about it, the reason is obviously there's lots of rice farming out in rice paddies there. And that's mm -hmm. that's a hat that blocks the sun perfectly and is light. Yeah, no, it seems perfectly functional. Plus a little bit of umbrella from the rain. Yeah, exactly. But it's also not like military issue. So, like, right. Speaking of hats, another thing you'll notice is that all of the Australian infantry is wearing what they call giggle hats. Uh, in the U.S., we call those boonie covers or boonie hats. And that is the soft, flexible hat that you can put the brim of it up if you want to or leave it down and it's kind of adjustable. So this decision speaks to a larger divide between American and Australian tactics in Vietnam, with the Australians preferring to equip their infantry to be lighter and more mobile for patrols into the jungle, rather than to fight from helicopters or vehicles like the Americans. Providing protection only from shrapnel and some pistols, the Aussies felt that the cons of the M1 steel helmet that the Americans wore outweighed the pros for their style of jungle fighting, where the soldier would need as little weight holding them down as possible. And of course, as well as protection from the sun and the rain and improved concealment a little bit because it broke up the silhouette of your head, as opposed to a helmet clearly does not break up the silhouette of your head against jungle foliage. So yes, there's zero protection. And if you get shot in the head, you're screwed, but there were advantages to them. And so that's what the Australians chose to wear. A lot of headshots in this movie, though. There are holy buckets. Not knowing anything about the accuracy of the film and just taking the film on its own merits as far as like how the story is told, how the actors act, right. how the director directs and what have you. What did we think of this movie so far? I'm dying to hear what Katie thinks because we haven't had a chance to talk about any of this yet. Oh, did you just watch this? I did, yeah. Okay. About an hour and a half before we started recording. Fresh. One of the reasons I chose to use that question when to open up the show is the similarities. And I think it kind of took a little bit of good and a little bit of bad from all these different ideas and tropes. For the most part, the cinematography, like on a filmic perspective, the cinematography is pretty well done. It's coherent. It's consistent. It 
has a vision. It's not just a static like, okay, we're going to set the tripod here and just film, you know, what happens. Like there was a lot of planning that went into making each scene very dynamic and getting real, real close up with people, as well as giving us plenty of wide shots. To me, that was one of the strongest aspects of the film is how well it's shot and how well it's edited together. The lighting is also very interesting. The lighting, I thought, was phenomenal for the most part. There were scenes of lighting where I was like, this feels like a different movie. Like, holy shit, this looks amazing. Yes, it's very good at giving a sense of emotion. That's what the lighting does so well. And, like, I only saw a couple complaints about this in the reviews, and I agree. There isn't too much saturation, because a lot of the times, especially in Vietnam movies, uh, you, you see a lot of saturation of greens and yellows, and there's some of that here, but it's Less early 2000s David Fincher, where it's all one and it's all the time and it's purposefully used. Like, especially when, for example, when uh, they drop the yellow smoke bomb, mm-hmm. then it kind of heightens up that yellow and we focus on that cloud and that tints the rest of that scene. That's a good choice in my mind. When they are at base camp, it's all flat. There's not real a whole lot of tint one way or the other. It's just kind of straight on normal, quote unquote, colorization. So I think technically movie looks good. This was also shot in Australia. Mm-hmm. Queensland. Yep. Yep. Which has a similar climate and, you know, it's not that far. Yeah. For our non, uh, our not down under listeners, Queensland is the northeasternmost region of Australia, and they have tons of rainforest and jungle there, as opposed to, you know, like Western Australia has a lot of desert. I'm sure in real life, they trained a lot, like these troops trained yeah. a lot in Queensland for Southeast Asian deployment, as well as they shot it all in Queensland. And I mean, if you remember, again, not to constantly compare, but We Were Soldiers was filmed in Northern California, and then they clearly put a few like potted plant like a few tropical (laughs) potted plants like in the dirt and i was like oh my god by contrast full metal jacket did the same thing but did it well where they just brought all of these palm trees to england each of which had its own name yeah you could shoot london for uh vietnam if you're good at what you're doing yeah if you real if you're kubrick if you number your palm trees yes exactly so they had the advantage, like they really make this 25 million work for them. And that, and another th- thing that kind of reminded me of is what was the one with the bombs under the ground? Great below the war below the war below. Thank you. I keep, I keep calling it the nine inch nails album. <laughs> <laughs> this is an infinitely better piece of artwork. Let me tell you, it kind of reminded me of that in that they used the money they had well, and that's not in any way what holds it back. What very much Holds it back for me is once we get into the characterization and the writing and all of that is where the things really start to fall down. And I mean, even the acting in this, it's fine. It's at least as good as we were soldiers, if not better. (laughs) You know, I think uh, Travis Fimmel does a fine job. Shitty Channing Tatum. (laughs) Every time I looked at him, I'm like, he looks like Channing Tatum's douchier brother. And he acts like that. He was also a model. See, I think he looks more like uh, Charlie Hunnam's like shitty meth head brother. I think if you took both of those and combined them, that's what you would get. You know, he does a fine job at that role. Everybody else is like they're they're not being asked to necessarily do a lot, but what they are asked to do, they do well and don't necessarily detract from anything. Like it's really the 
the bones of the movie that are that are bad. So that was really disappointing, I think. I actually didn't love Fimmel. I did love him. I thought he was fine. Let's be clear. He was one of the parts of the movie that sort of reminded me of, and again, this is nitpicking Saving Private Ryan, but you don't look like you're acting in the period that you're supposed to be acting in. He was throwing some very strong, like, 2012 vibes. Maybe you should tell them to hurry the fuck up. How about that? Mm, I see what you mean. That doesn't seem like a the way you would have phrased that in 1966. It was a very 2019 performance or earlier. He feels a bit arrogant. Not 1966 for that kind of characterization, I thought. And I don't know if that was all the writing or if that was his performance or maybe his face just looks like that. But I don't know. He's fine. Like I said, that's what I thought of when I watched him. I I will give him credit. I really, really disliked him in the beginning. He really made himself hateable before he goes out there and has to prove himself or whatever. Because he's proving himself to the audience, not to the men. But in the beginning, he just comes off as an arrogant shitbag when he, he goes to his commander. Or no, it's not even his commander. He goes to the brigadier. He goes over his head. And it's like, I'm way too good for this. I want to go do some real fighting. And the guy's like, who the fuck are you to say this? This is... I care. Look at my face. Doesn't it tell you I care? You know, like he made me really dislike him and it was only partially redeemed by the end. At the end, I was still like, mm, I still don't really like you that much. Oh, by the way, I was confused about this. So I asked Brigadier is the same. It's Brigadier General. It's just yeah, understood, I, I guess. So, yeah, that's what I, I figured. I wasn't 100 percent sure. So I double checked. Did you guys recognize Richard uh, Roxburgh who plays Brigadier Jackson from anything? No. He looked familiar, but I couldn't place him. Jackie called it. He's the Duke from Moulin Rouge. (laughs) (gasps) Don't think that I'm naive, Ziedler. I shall hold the deeds to the Moulin Rouge. Okay. God damn, I haven't watched that in a minute. He's got the same bad guy mustache and everything. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Holy shit, yeah, it's been a bit. I really loved his acting. To really briefly explain the organizational structure of the Australian Army at this time, because it is very slightly different from what you may be familiar with in the American Army. There's a couple of confusing things like 6RAR, which stands for Royal Australian Regiment, is a battalion. Don't ask me why a battalion has the word regiment in the title, because that makes no sense. But it might be because the Australian Army doesn't have regiments. So anyways... The battalion level is about 550 to 1,000 men. 6RAR had four companies under it, A, B, C, and D, right? Delta Company is the one that we get familiar with. That's about 100 to 225 men. I believe in this case, Delta Company had 108. And you can see a good visual on this. They do it in the documentary, and you can find it online as well. Within each company, you had four platoons. And this is the element you see when Delta Company goes out, right? They split up into their four platoons. And so you have the platoons are named with a number. So 10, 11, and 12 doesn't mean anything other than 10th platoon, 11th platoon, 12th platoon. Like why there are those numbers, I don't know, but it's just a name of that platoon. And then command and headquarters, which is where Major Smith was at the time, right? He's doing the coordinating. He's moving these units around. And then below that, each platoon is divided into sections, which are uh, usually three sections, nine to 16 men. In the American armed forces, a platoon would be split up into squads and fire teams, but same concept. You're trying to make your units 
break down into smaller parts so that they're flexible and you can move them around during operations, both in the way that they're moving, in the way that they're engaging the enemy, and in the way that you make tactical decisions to move things around. And lastly, the thing I found a little confusing was the radio call signs. So the radio calls are all pretty accurate. I think I mentioned this in another episode, but you do hear the artillery forward observer saying repeat when he's asking someone to say again, basically. Big no-no. And someone who works with artillery would be the first person to know that. This has been ingrained in me from working with aircraft on the radio forever. The reason why I'll even say say again to my girlfriend sometimes, because I literally just do not use the word repeat, is that in artillery, if you set up a coordinate, you, you know, you say fire for effect and they fire a salvo. If you say repeat, it means that you want them to fire again at the same exact coordinates, right? So you want them to fire for effect again. So because the military wants to avoid any misconstruence of the word repeat for someone in an artillery unit to accidentally fire their guns, we say say again on the radio. And that is pervasive throughout aviation, throughout ground troops, throughout forever. So they... They screwed that little detail up in the movie, which I was surprised. Well, they didn't ask anybody. Right? (laughs) But when they're calling each other, to remind you, radio etiquette is, hey, you, this is me. So, Liam Dan means that Dan is calling Liam. That's the way the transmission works. And so, uh, you know, headquarters, first platoon would be first platoon calling headquarters. The confusing part is that you don't hear radio calls here, you know, saying uh, 6RAR headquarters, 11th platoon or anything like that. You hear all these coded numbers. And the reason for that is that these radio networks were not protected. And so the Vietnamese could listen to it. And so they had to come up with code names. And so what you'll hear a lot in the film is Smith's platoons calling to him saying, four, this is four, one or four, this is four, two. And I was like, I have no idea what the hell that is. turns out four is the fourth letter in the alphabet or d so delta company command and headquarters which is smith and his platoon are four everybody else so say uh 10th 11th and 12th are four one four two four three it's just a coded number so that the enemy if they were listening doesn't know who 10 or 11 or 12 is same thing when he calls back to headquarters zero he calls i think he says zero one this is delta one And that is the context of Delta One is the commander of Delta Company. Again, I don't know why he doesn't use four calling to zero one, which is the headquarters of the actual so battalion headquarters. So if you get confused by that, trust me, even some of our military experts. It's on purpose. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you, Liam. It is. It's a feature, not a bug. Exactly. Man. I was exercising all of my self-restraint while you guys were talking, and I just kind of pictured myself loading up the weapons bay of an aircraft, just like stuffing like ammo and rockets into it, because I'm like, oh, when this thing takes off, I'm dropping so much fucking napalm. So before you before you go off, was there a moment when you were like, oh, this this might not be good? Yeah, two and a half minutes in. Mine was actually earlier than that. Oh, okay. And I was, I was like, using two and a half minutes as a random number. I mean, I, this I could, is, yeah, but mine is actually earlier than that because like there was this, like, I don't know if this is snobbery or if this is inside baseball. You ever watch something and before the opening credits, you 
see like the logos of the contributing companies and the the different production companies and distributors and so on and so forth that have come together to make this movie happen. And usually you'll see like a big one, like Universal. Mm-hmm. And then you'll see like a couple of smaller ones. And then maybe like if the filmmaker is a real self-starter, they have like their own production company that's like, you know, a yeah. A band apart like Tarantino or American Empirical like Wes Anderson, you know, like they do. Most big directors have their own production company these days because that's just how things work now. Because that's what you do. And sometimes, like if you think back to Master and Commander, that had Jesus. That was like Universal and Miramax. And there was another like three big companies came together to make that happen. This was like fucking 15 little Dinky ass companies that I have never heard of <laughs> and the Australian government came together. And I'm like, I don't know if I'm just being snobby about this, but this is a lot of places I've never heard from coming together to make this movie happen. That does not fill me with hope. That is that is a very good insight. Like you're talking about inside baseball. That is such a, like I can't tell you I haven't been to many, many film, small film festivals. And I go and I'm like, all right, let's count the production logos. One. Usually once I hit five, I'm like, oh, somebody better have like a great idea. This was more than five, I think. This had a lot. But yeah, so that was my first inkling that we were going to be in for a wild ride here because I was like, this is a lot of production companies. So yep. I, I will say that my first instinct was on the pause screen or or whatever the image is on Amazon Prime once you actually click on the film it's usually a screenshot from the film actually it's not yep. like a title or anything and Travis Fimmel was front and center and I remember being subjected to the first season of Raised by Wolves in which he's also a lead and he is also terrible and I was like oh no I remember Travis Fimmel and I saw his stupid fucking face and i was already worried but to really answer your question it <laughs> took two or three minutes before i started to really worry about the film so let me start by dropping my first round of napalm on travis fimmel and whoever wrote his character but also the choices he made with the acting i'll start this off with a blade runner reference because it's been a minute and, <laughs> and you've earned it god damn it one of the main antagonists slash protagonists, depending on how you look at it in Blade Runner, is a replicant, which means he was built in a lab and created. And one of the famous character traits of these characters, but specifically Roy, is that they've only have four years to live. So they're given most of like human emotion, but they haven't really had the experience to understand how to deal with it. And Rutger Hauer famously had these incredible scenes where he kind of emotionally reacts strangely to the situation where it gives you this weird, almost uncanny valley feel where you're like, I don't understand what he's doing. He looks like he's about to cry. He looks like he's laughing. He looks and like the emotion doesn't exactly match what's happening. But it's it was a brilliant move as an actor because it totally through his acting explains sort of the emotional turmoil that that being is going through. Travis Fimmel is like a broken replicant in every fucking scene where he's required to have an emotional reaction. It's either the wrong emotional reaction or it's so confused that I can't. It's like a baby when you can't tell whether it's about to laugh or cry and you're just kind of waiting to be like, "Uh, something's happening. I don't know what's happening, but it's going to happen. That's Travis Fimmel in a nutshell in like basically every scene to me. Now, that's just his acting, which I can blame on 
him as a shitty actor, in my opinion. And I hate that he's the lead in this. I think most of the supporting cast in this is really good. And I actually feel like any of the other lower experience actors who played large or a couple of the sergeants or another lieutenant could have taken the role of Major Smith and done a better job than Travis Fimmel. But additionally, I would say that while I agree with Katie that the budget for $25 million was pretty well spent on the effects, the CGI, the aircraft, the napalm, the artillery strikes, like a lot of the explosions, the gunshots, the combat looks really good. The wounds looked pretty good. Yeah. There was at least one really adorable miniature explosion with the, with the trees where you see, I was like, oh, look at that cute little miniature because the explosion happened and it just like the tree like, whoo, at the end just goes <laughs> flying in a way that an actual tree would never go flying. And I was like, oh, look at you. You tried so hard. There's a little extra hard stunt like wire work with dudes flying around in the explosions. Yeah. And I was like, all right, I don't know. I've never witnessed artillery fire. I don't know how bodies really fly, but some of this seems a little over dramatized, <laughs> but whatever. When the Irish guy got his legs blown up, and then had his legs back a second later. I was like, I was pretty sure I saw his legs fly off. I like the one where the explosion happens and like it happens at least like 50 yards away and the guy's laying on the ground and then it's like, it's a it's obviously a wire pull of him in the same exact position just scooting real fast across the ground. I was like, that's not how that works. But 90% of the effects I thought looked really good and the F4 yeah, scenes, like the CGI airplanes like looked good. Uh, they used some real Hueys. But what my point is, they should have set a little more of that aside for the writers because I thought the writers sucked. Oh, I'm sorry. They don't pay writers. Okay, fine. Well, they should have paid some better writers for this. Not necessarily how it works. Okay. Funny, interesting, crazy. The guy who wrote this, his name is Stuart Beatty, and he's recently had something very large come out, and it is Obi-Wan Kenobi. He wrote three episodes. Oh, well, that explains a lot. Of Obi-Wan. No, three story by credits, and one teleplay by, and one written by. That is so perfect so he was heavily involved in obi-wan kenobi the writing in that is so fucking atrocious that that (laughs) explains a lot that's a different episode of danger close enough i'll take your word for it i've i've given up on most things star wars so i have not watched it i watched it it was something including the story by of the last episode parts one two three and six he wrote hey it can all be written by the duffer brothers you know I do want to break down Travis Fimmel's role a little bit more because I think you guys will both have some insight on this, but it's interesting from a, um, specifically for Liam, I'm interested in this as a actor making choices perspective. What I found interesting, especially later when I found out, okay, what was accurate, what was inaccurate, what really happened, what didn't really happen. Micah talks a lot about this because he knows a lot about the background. And while it applies to other characters, it applies the most to Major Harry Smith because obviously he's in the movie a lot. And so it wasn't just that I thought the character was written poorly in terms of the dialogue and the interactions. I mean, honestly, Micah introduces his comments on the film by saying, if you want to know anything real about the Battle of Long Tan, do not refer to this movie. It is horribly historically inaccurate. And while the general beats of the firefight are mostly accurate, you know, there's some timeline shifts, there's time where it's supposed to be raining and it's not, and like things like that, that you can kind of hand wave and it's like, whatever, the end result is what happened. 
but I'm talking about the character of these people and these characters. They made up all of this dramatic stuff that didn't happen in real life. Wait, there were times that it was supposed to be raining and they made it not rain. So essentially the monsoon comes like way deep into the battle when in real life, the entire battle happened during a monsoon that never stopped. And the reason why the airstrike couldn't drop when the F-4s first come in, in the film, they depict it as being a defective smoke grenade, when in reality, it was raining so fucking hard that the aircraft were not able to see the battlefield at all. And they did end up dropping further north, I think, uh, when when Smith is like, okay, we'll just drop them here because I know there's enemy forces there. They're just not going to be close to us. Because, like, they had it start raining and stop raining and start raining. Like, anytime yeah. they wanted drama, it's just like, oh, now bring the clouds in out of nowhere and make it rain. Yeah, in real life, the entire thing was in a incredible monsoon to the point that when they went oh. to retrieve bodies the next day, it looked like the earth had consumed them. Like half the bodies were like almost completely buried because the amount of water on the ground was insane. Like the description for people who were there was like, yeah, it was literally a monsoon. So, but anyways, I only brought that up to compare a minor inaccuracy compared to the major inaccuracies that were made with these characters. Before I knew anything about the background of this, I was super confused by the portrayal of Major Smith because like Katie mentioned earlier, I'm like, okay, this guy has a commando background. He's supposed to be really tough and like train this company to be like these badasses. Like he clearly trained them above and beyond the level at which the standard was for the Australian army at the time. And then they're shown to be these undisciplined beer drinking, like disobeying orders, fuckheads, almost all of them. And I was like, this is weird. Why are these troops that are supposed to be super well-trained, like drinking beer and having accidental discharges and literally a lieutenant who's supposed to be a young leader playing poker during an artillery attack? I'll see you two and I'll raise you five. That fire's incoming, Lieutenant Sharp. Keep your pants on, Sarge. Can't you see we're in the middle of a game? This is crazy. Like, this is a level of lack of discipline that I hardly have ever seen, even in, like, Platoon, where that's, like, the point of the movie. And the point here is supposed to be the opposite. So, I was like, okay, that's strange. And then in the next scene, like Katie mentioned, Smith is asking for a transfer, and he's like, fuck these guys, I want to go back to my old commando unit. And I was like, okay, I don't get this. You can't be bragging about how hard you train Delta Company, then showing how shitty Delta Company is, and then having the officer in charge be like i'm out of here none of that made sense I, I never wanted to be here he calls it he's sick of breastfeeding these new recruits or however he puts it i know nothing about being in the military we've discussed this i'm a sentient tube of cookie dough and even that rung hollow to me right well it didn't make sense without no yeah it's like wait there's First of all, that sergeant wouldn't be able to interact with that lieutenant like that, but that lieutenant yeah. also wouldn't act like that. This isn't like in the 70s, like after Tet, when like everything, everybody knew everything was shitty and like in a spiraling existential, what have you, like where some of that might make sense. Like in Platoon, kind of like, it does make sense, right? Yeah, in Platoon, it right. makes perfect sense. There's an awful lot of nihilism that is set in because everybody's like, oh, we're losing and nothing matters and no one cares and we're all just gonna die and nobody gives yeah it's like is this 1966 that this happens because i'm getting like post 68 vibes 
Sure, but even so, you could have been depicting a unit that had, like, historically terrible discipline in 1962 because they're all conscripts or something, like, fictionally, like, it's possible and it's reasonable if you make it make sense. But you can't show both things just contradicting themselves at all times. So, that's one of the parts of the writing that I had a problem with. But again, even his decisions as an actor, even if you're following the writing and following the script, which... If he was a good actor, I would have rebelled against the script. I would have been like, why is my character doing this? None of this makes sense. But then when you look at the actual history, basically, it actually makes sense. Once you learn the real history and look into the background on on this, basically take any scene that seems overly dramatic and unrealistic, including Large's accidental discharge, where he then lies about seeing an enemy soldier, and he's confronted by Major Smith, and then Major Smith chokes him out into the tent pole. I think you're a fucking joke. Breathe. That's because I'm choking you. I'm cutting off all the air to your worthless lungs. Doing everyone a favor. You see, there's a thousand ways to die in a war zone. Nobody asks too many questions when another grunt gets listed killed in action. All of that shit is 100% made up and has no basis in actual history. Smith was... Known to be tough and trained Delta Company into being these really fit, tough dudes, like the way he had trained commandos, which also Travis Fimmel has a double chin and is like not in shape enough to portray this character. I'm like, I'd be pissed if I was Smith because he would have been in like really good shape for the time. And again, all this stuff is completely out of character for who the person was and makes no sense in the actual plot because overall this unit was really professional and really good at their jobs because they had been training for this specific operation forever. And Smith, again, took pride in making Delta Company tougher than all the other companies in this battalion because it was a point of personal pride. So it already seemed fishy when I first saw the film and it became aggravatingly false after I learned the actual history later. It just has a lot of ring of drama to it. And, you know, we've talked before about based on true events movies. It's my least favorite thing. And I think that this is like a prime example of how not to do that. And I've seen a couple of other movies that that are at least as bad, honestly, that I'm sure we'll watch for this podcast. It's like Exorcism of Emily Rose, the war movie. (laughs) Yeah. So sometimes with those kinds of things, you can just tell how fake it is because that level of drama is just so beyond the pale. And in a film like in a bridge too far where James Khan pulls the gun on the doctor. R.I.P. You know, yes, exactly. R.I.P. James Khan. He just passed recently. He was a gentleman and a great actor. Was he a gentleman? He might take umbrage at that. <laughs> no, but he did. He did like to have on sets. I, I learned this about him. I was like, of course he did. People had to call him Jimmy the dream. Oh, I did hear that, yes. <laughs> and I was like, oh, James Conn, you're the best. What did he say? So I think there's just this sense from this film, it's different than We Were Soldiers. Like, We Were Soldiers dramatizes things, but it does it in a, like, very clean way. Everybody is very patriotic, and there is almost no drama between the troops. It's very rah-rah. Exactly. Whereas in this, it's all just interpersonal drama that, you would see on a soap opera or something. It's There's not enough command, if you will. There's not enough discipline. 
in this. I lost count of how many times people were blatantly disobeying orders and not giving a fuck. And I was like, there's no way all of this would be going on. Which, again, in Italian we say, da che mondo è mondo, from, from where the world is the world. Meaning, no matter where you are in the world, this is true. The infantry is the most disciplined portion of an army because they have the highest stakes and the highest consequences. Right. If you're flippant against commanders on a regular basis when they tell you to go shave or clean your rack or whatever, you are going to get people killed literally, not like theoretically. And so the infantry is always the most disciplined. I mean, there are exceptions. There are undisciplined units or an undisciplined time period where the entire army Again, like later in the Vietnam War is disillusioned or whatever, but not like this, especially not under someone who was famous for his professionalism and instilling discipline. So, yeah, it just became this thing in the movie where I'm like, how many times are we just going to disregard authority here? And not for good moral reasons. There's And everybody does it. Yeah, every, it's yeah. like widespread. Like his his commander. What was uh, what was Fatty Mustache? Fatty mustache. Yes. You know, they showed, you know, I felt bad because I was, mm -hmm. but then like at the end, they show everybody's picture next to each other. They're all like, fatter, right? I was like, why are all these people fat? Especially yeah, all the that actors colonel. <laughs> that colonel is like, really? You've been stationed in the jungle, sir. It's Brigadier Jackson and the colonel is uh, Lieutenant Colonel Townsend. Yeah, Townsend. Fuck that guy. He's like, I'm just going to leave. I'm going to just leave. I was like, can't you get caught out for desertion? Like, right? you, you are literally leaving the base, man. What the fuck? So many weird dynamics where it's like, you have to send out the APCs. You have to. They're going to die if you don't. And you're like, oh, go fatty mustache. <laughs> Stand up guy, fatty mustache. And then he's like, by the way, get me one of those APCs because I have to be there when we win. Which you hear the, the thing at the end, right? When he mm -hmm. is talking to Smith. God, we're shining brightly on us here, Harry. I really do. So will the history books. Well done, I say. Yeah, it was just, it was very stupid. It was just very stupid. And it, again, like so many other things in this, it rings hollow to the point where I'm like, you had to have made some of that shit up. That doesn't sound like a thing. Maybe this is just a very strange instance where like everybody is the point of this, that everybody is like a little good badass sometimes. And then like a little bit undisciplined shithead sometimes. Like if that's what you're trying to accomplish here, there's nobody here who's really good except for Bob the sergeant. Because they don't even follow through with it. If you wanted to show an undisciplined, unruly, disobeying unit, they would also have performed poorly in combat. Instead, they perform yeah. well in combat and you don't see barely any instances of insubordination or lack of discipline when they're actually under fire, which is not how human nature works. If you can't even be held to account and deal with authority when you're being told to like get some coordinates or shave or whatever it is, you are not going to do that when there are bullets whizzing past your head. I mean, again, I haven't been in combat, but I know that much. That's why discipline is so important. So that when it really so matters, yeah, it's ingrained. And when shit hits the fan, you do what you're supposed to do, despite the fact that people are dying left and right. So again, both in the small character and in the bigger picture, None of it is jiving and none of it makes sense. Funny enough, Liam, the, the moments you mentioned with Townsend later about 
asking the APCs to come back and pick him up and then having an APC wait for him. Yeah, and I'm like, wait for him? Like, why did you send them out there? Unfortunately, that's actually accurate. Now, the details of of exactly how it happened are a little bit different. He didn't lie in the briefing room. He actually was just busy. And then when he realized the APCs left without him, he tried to order all of them to come back. And the APC commander was like, the fuck I'm doing that? Like, there are troops under fire. Our mission right now is to go rescue Delta. That happens in the movie because he just said, he says, bring him back. And he's like, you, you go deal with it. In the same way that when he says you have to stay in the jungle you have to stay where you are he says you wait for him let's go guys and so that's what happened in real life he sent two apcs back to get him he's he left one at the river crossing to protect them and so in the end they were minus half a platoon when they got to delta company and five minutes late so townsend was responsible potentially for someone actually dying because had they gotten there five minutes earlier they would have had the spirit firepower etc had they all just run out of bullets and then clutched their bayonets and knives at that point that was a bit much they were out of bullets twice so once before the aerial before the air drop did happen and then once again where you hear the interviews uh, and I'll, i'll throw this in the surplus ordinance there are really good audio interviews on a podcast with both smith and Lieutenant David mm. Sabin, who was the platoon leader for 12th platoon. And he was like there in the thick of the firefight with 12th. And they talk about it. They're like, yeah, I was down to like one bullet, you know, three, mm-hmm. 10. Like the thing you see in the movie in the firefight is accurate. But the way the ending goes is a very tropey saving private Ryan. Like I'm going to shoot at the tank and then the plane's going to swing by and bomb the tank. They were like, okay, this is it. They all give each other their like, meaningful like hobbit looks and then the the apcs roll in and save the day like right at that moment is that how that happened or is i can't speak to the like minute by minute timing of it but generally speaking yes so here's the thing you have to understand if you if you don't get anything else about the details of this firefight the important part you need to understand is that this is delta company goes out on patrol trying to see like potentially where the enemy is and where they are attacking from. And they accidentally run into a few of them. And then all of a sudden this battle escalates. They ended up being outnumbered 20 to one. So there's somewhere around a regimental size force of 2000 North Vietnamese, probably mixed some Viet Cong, some North Vietnamese. There's no way you're winning that firefight in any kind of conventional sense. Right. That wasn't, it wasn't an ambush. So the Australians had some advantage in the sense that they weren't necessarily ready for a fight. Again, there's sort of an element of surprise where all of a sudden it's like, Oh shit, there's those shoot them. But once they realized what was going on and started to bring in reinforcements, again, you'll see this in some of the tactical breakdowns. I believe 10th and 11th platoon especially got surrounded on three sides where like they were really fucked. And they they didn't mention that in the, tactically. In the yeah. movie. That all really happened. The between the artillery and the APCs, that is what saved the day. So it's this sort of command and control mix of use of different weapons in technically a really smart way. This is why this battle is really studied. And it's like the f- most famous Australian engagement in the Vietnam war is because this force that was outmanned 20 to one won this battle. They ended up with 18 killed in action, 24 wounded, and 
just the bodies they recovered the next day of the North Vietnamese were numbering in the like 250. I think the estimates of the after action report are that the total casualties on the Vietnamese side were, I want to say around 800. Again, a reminder that casualties are both killed and injured, but it's just people that are out of the fight. They're not able to continue fighting. So those numbers are great for a fighting force. And a lot of it is due to the coordination with the artillery and aircraft and the APCs coming in to save the day. So I think it's generally the combat is pretty accurate, although I'm sure some of the timing is done to be made a little overly dramatic. You know, Katie, you mentioned one thing that some of the criticism was that it kind of painted the the Vietnamese all with a single brush. Yes, that was a big criticism in pretty much every review, which hmm. I think it's legit. Yeah, no, absolutely. You have the one moment again where you have the the two ladies dragging away the one soldier that kind of gives a humanized sort of moment there. But I kind of would have liked a little bit more perspective on the the Vietnamese strategy as to what they were doing there because you get this weird sense in the dialogue back in the base that they're expecting to be overrun very soon by North Vietnamese. Yep. Yep. The brigadier makes mention that he's expecting an attack and that's why he doesn't want to send the APCs out. Right. So is there, is this the army marching towards the base to take it? Is this just happenstance that they happened uh, upon each other? Would the base have been overrun if Delta Company hadn't been out there in a 300 kind of like we saved Greece sort of way? So David Sabin talks about this a little bit because while the Vietnamese tried to claim this as a victory, there was also some rumor of, oh, they got ambushed, like the Australians got ambushed. And David Sabin, the lieutenant, talks about how there's just no evidence for an ambush, meaning that the way you would set up an ambush, you would have a certain number of defensive fortification you'd be dug in you'd be ready to like let an opposing force walk far enough into like your booby traps and then spring the trap and you would already be surrounding them on three sides etc like i'm not a military strategist but essentially what he was saying is we didn't find any of that evidence for an ambush so what his personal and professional opinion was that yes they ran into the beginnings of what was going to end up being an attack on their base. They just ended up meeting them in the jungle instead of waiting for them to probably wait for nighttime and come to them. Gotcha. I forget where the artillery was positioned reference the base, but I think one of probably the main disadvantages of staying at the base and defending against an assault is that any kind of indirect fire would be much harder to bring you support. Like the artillery is probably too close to the base. And even if it isn't, it's too dangerous to be firing that close to the base. Same with aircraft. If they have to drop ordnance, it'd be hard to drop ordnance so close. So again, taking the fight out into the jungle provides a lot of tactical advantages. And again, as you saw earlier, when we talked about sort of the overall doctrine of the Australian army and the troops that were in this region, it was to do this on the regular, clear out the civilians and then patrol on the regular to keep suppressing the North Vietnamese activity and stop them from being able to like amass troops and do giant assaults and take over the base and kill everybody, etc. 
Now, I think we talked about this in the outpost, and I think I disagreed with you guys on that one for the same reasons. And I will say that when it comes to perspective, I don't have a problem with the way the Vietnamese were depicted because I didn't see a lot of faceless trope type of stuff. I think I just saw the camera and the writing staying with the Australian troops, which is why you hear lots of shouting in Vietnamese language, but you don't get subtitles. And like, as frustrating as that is, because you're like, oh, but I want to know what they're saying. Like, what are they talking about flanking them or what? But none of those soldiers would have understood Vietnamese. So if the film is from their perspective, it makes sense for you as the audience member to also not understand what the Vietnamese are saying. I'm not saying you couldn't make a movie where you show both sides and you have actual characters with names on both sides and you show their background and you show, right? You show like a more neutral right. accounting. But that's that's, a, different that's just a different movie. Yeah, yeah. And, right. and, and I'm not saying that that can't be a great movie. Like it certainly can. It's just not this movie. And I, I'm actually glad that this movie, for that at least, stays in its lane. And it's like, no, you want to show the what it was like to be in this particular firefight from the Australian side. So to me, it's an issue of scope and perspective, not necessarily like, oh, making the Vietnamese this. No, I don't think they're going for that. And that wasn't the sense I got from the critic reviews. It was much more that like, this is a choice that you made. If this movie had been made in, say, 1972, 1975, no one would have commented on that choice. Now people are going to comment on like, you made a specific choice to not not have any of that perspective. It is exclusively from this one perspective. And I think it's a neutral choice generally, but I do think it's valid to say, what are you saying with your film by making that choice? Why did you choose not to do that? Because that adds depth and complexity. It's, not, it's a neutral thing to do because I think they did it because there really isn't time. This movie is two hours long and it's very much dedicated to telling this one specific type of story. And that's okay. It's totally okay to tell that one specific type of story. But people are going to notice and all choices that you make for your art, especially with something like this, are going to have good and bad consequences right? based on the viewer. You know, some people will think something is good that others think is bad. And for some critics, it's more like, I feel like this is a detriment to your movie. I feel like if you had chosen to expand the perspective a bit, it would have improved the film because they also didn't like a bunch of other things about the movie. It wasn't like, this is the one bad thing you did. It was, okay, but... You know, and this also doesn't really sit right with me in addition to X, Y, and Z. Is it the is it the Clint Eastwood bar? If Clint Eastwood could be bothered to tell both sides of Iwo Jima, then like you don't really have an excuse. Or let's not forget, <laughs> We Were Soldiers has several scenes from the perspective of the Vietnamese. It's true. Right, but they're like picking up mini American flags and waxing philosophical. Oh, oh right. It's they're not good. Super tropey. It's not a good perspective. Right. Yeah, but it's 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 an effort from Mel Gibson <laughs> and Randall Wallace. And it says something specific, and that's what I'm saying with this film is I think they just kind of chose to go like, well, no, we're focusing on these particular people and entirely from their perspective of the film. And that's a fine choice to make, but it is going to, like all choices, it is going to impact how other people view your film. I think had this production and this filmmaker tried to do what you guys are saying, it would have been a disaster. I don't think within the context of the skill level and style of this filmmaker, if they had been like, 
yeah, we should do that. Let's like do a half hour of like Vietnamese. I think it would have been atrocious. So like, I, I'm glad they didn't do that because I don't think they had it in them, nor this film. Had I don't think they had the budget for something like that. I think that's the thing is if you're making a war film these days on a $25 million budget, you got to pick and choose what you're going to do very carefully. And I don't think, I don't think it does necessarily anything wrong, but I think some of the choices that the film makes are to the detriment of the film. In my perspective. I don't even think that it's a matter of that they would have if they had it in them or would have if they had the budget. And I think this is where it gets a little bit dicey. I think they did it for the drama. Mm -hmm. Because it's more dramatic if you tell it just from the perspective of the force that you don't know where the enemy is. You don't know what their tactics are. You don't know what their numbers are. When you tell it from that limited perspective, you get more, not like horror movie anxiety, but like it's a, it's kind of scarier that way. It heightens the tension. It heightens the tension. I'm sure that's what these guys were feeling. Yeah. That's an accurate way to depict it. But to just to throw in an example of a movie that we haven't watched for this podcast as of yet, but I think a lot of our listeners might have seen and you guys might have seen again made in a different period, but you never really hear this complaint with the movie Zulu. And I'm not sure why exactly there seems to be a lot more respect in the film given to the Zulu. And like that feels like the it's especially for the time it was made painted with a fairly even hand where it's like, yes, these British guys maybe shouldn't have been there, but they composed themselves well they fought bravely they did an incredible thing but also there seemed to be like a mutual respect that the film had for both the zulu and for the british forces that were that were having their little like their last stand at this outpost where they never should have survived i think this movie doesn't quite have that same sense of mutual respect i think this has much more of a the bad guys are coming feel does that make sense? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Maybe that's what they were picking up on. And again, it's not a huge glaring like you guys are racist kind of problem. It's just that. And again, Dan, to your point with these writers and this filmmaker, it might be a level of nuance that they're just not capable of. Yeah. And again, I think you have to ask whose perspective are we trying to show here? Is this the omnipotent bird's eye view, you know, big picture story with politics and all of that? Or is it just trying to be at ground level and show you the tactical experience of these soldiers? And I will say, I'll give them credit there as well. This doesn't feel like a rah-rah Australia movie. No, because they made everybody assholes. <laughs> I don't think. Problem. But it's kind of also the thing. Like that's I the, don't think any of us can say that. We're not Australian and Australia has... Because I tried to read a couple of Australian reviews of this, and um, the Sydney Morning Herald, at least, talked about how it did feel very Australian. Like, there's a lot of Australian comedy in it, like the little jokes that they're making back and forth to each other, that type of thing. So, because I was like, I wonder if this is, if this does come across, because Australians... Is this flag waving down under? Is, is it? Because they do have, um, one of the other things I noticed in... And again, I am not Australian. I am Minnesota American. So very far away from down under. From the reviews I read from Australia, it did seem 
that that's what it was geared towards. And all of them mentioned how Australians are very critical of the war, that they have a different perspective than Americans. Let me clarify, and certainly I can't speak for the Australian audience or how Australian veterans feel or anything like that. When I said I don't feel like this is rah-rah Australia, I didn't mean to say, like, it, it might very well have Australian slang and, like, feel like a very Australian movie and depicting Australian troops and all of that. I'm saying its goal is not to make overarching statements about Australia's place in joining the U.S. in this war and about their role in the world oh, and in I Vietnam see. and all that. I'm saying that it's not a rah-rah flag wave. It's not propagandistic. It's not rah-rah Australia in Vietnam. Correct. It's a small film about a a small group of Australian soldiers who, by the way, have been historically and traditionally, I don't want to say maligned, but certainly not given their due. Meaning Forgotten. is Kind of forgotten. How I saw it, but... Especially on a world stage, um, whereas Australians might know a lot about Long Tan. It's not that well known in the US and in other places. And Harry Smith talks about this in his interviews that he put in a bunch of his soldiers for commendations, like specific medals for gallantry and all this stuff. And mostly due to bureaucratic problems at the time, I think. Like, a lot of them got turned down. They got some unit commendations. The leadership got a bunch of medals, some of which Harry Smith turned down because he was like, no, until you give my soldiers the medals I think they deserve, I don't want shit from the government. And he fought for 40-plus years to correct the record and get those commendations issued The Australian government at the time refused to award bravery medals to many of the deserving soldiers of D Company 6RAR due to award allocation rules. It wasn't until 2016 that they received proper recognition for their bravery. The U.S. government did award Delta Company the U.S. Presidential Citation, which the unit proudly wears to this day. 1968. The U.S. awarded them this before the war was even over. The U.S. had shown their appreciation. And it took till 2016 for what Smith was recommending for some of those soldiers to get those awards. So, again, I think this movie gets some leeway from me in terms of wanting to depict the small unit experience of these soldiers, because I'm sure a lot of their families felt like they didn't really get their due. They got a great documentary, which I personally think is better than this film because it's so much more accurate, yet it's still entertaining and tells you the story and interviews some of the real people. Uh, The Battle of Longtan from 2006, you can find it on YouTube. That's the other thing this movie really fucked up, and I'm not going to give it any slack on, is I don't know who, if anyone, did do military consulting on this, but it definitely was not Major Smith. And it wasn't any of his lieutenants and any of the people depicted, which is crazy to me because I'm like, how are you going to do a movie with a veteran who's still alive, who was there, and you're not even going to interview him, like for the writers to write the script and ask him questions? Like, not even that? Like, that's insane to me. But the weird thing was, I saw that a couple, at least one of the actors did go and meet his real life counterpart. And the two of them became friends. Well, that's good. That was why it was so confusing that they didn't do that because, and from the little bits I watched on YouTube, Smith and Lieutenant Frank Riley and one other guy were still alive. They saw the preview of this, like they showed it to them and they all kind of 
gave their thoughts and opinions, and then they had to tell them, oh, I'm sorry, we, we can't make any changes now. <laughs> this is just how it is. We don't actually care. We just wanted right? to see if you'd pat us on the back. Yeah, right, right. And I will say that Sergeant Bob Buick is, is one of the other ones who's still alive and kicking when this went off. And I'll tell you, that man, just as handsome as the actor who plays him when he was that age. Damn, that, that actor is very handsome. And it's amazing because uh, throughout the little interview I, sh- I saw with him, he's holding a picture of himself and he's like topless and looking good. I was like, mm, sir, I love it. <laughs> we know what you're doing. <laughs> I know, right? He's very proudly holding it and he's got all these medals and everything too. So, because he was a very decorated soldier beyond this battle. So, at least three of like the bigger names in this saw it and interacted with the people who actually played them and were available and all of them were very gracious in their interviews you know i read some with harry smith and he was like you know i guess i was considered a hard ass but you know i just wanted to make sure that everybody was as many people would come home alive as possible you know he was and he said he cried when he watched the film and that it affected him for a couple of days afterwards because it was so he he said it brought him back to that place. So I think in some ways it must have felt realistic for them. But I would guess it was far more in the not in the exact actions of the people in the film, but in like, oh, yes, I remember watching, you know, Second Lieutenant Sharp get taken out. And I remember the the real moments that I had with him, not the ones in the film. Yeah, where he's an asshole. If this had been a horror movie, he would be the guy that you're like, can't wait to see Ghostface kill that guy. Yeah, totally. Like, that was his part to play in this movie. It was like, I don't know. It's like the part that Australian Miles Teller would play. Right. And again, if if it's fictional and it's not a real person, cool. Build yeah. that trope, right? Do the horror movie. Do right. whatever. When it's a real person, like, are you not concerned about his family seeing the scene with the poker scene where it's like, oh, look, your son is completely fucking unprofessional dickhead in this scene. And then he died. That That's what's going to happen. I agree with Katie that from the interviews I saw, everyone was very gracious. But let me be less gracious. Let than, me not be that for you on your behalf. In defense of Harry Smith, because um, I was listening to, and if you want more information on this, the Principles of War podcast is a military podcast by a military major uh, in Australia. And he interviews a lot of people and talks about military doctrine. So it's geared towards the military. But if you're watching a film like this, it's very interesting. He did a series of interviews, both with Harry Smith and with David Sabin. And towards the end of his interviews with Harry Smith, he comes up to the big question that I'm sure everyone's waiting to hear, which is what did you think of the film Danger Close? And For all of the inaccuracies, and again, showing him physically assaulting his men, which is something that never happened, requesting a transfer, which is something that never happened, acting completely unprofessional and like a bad leader, which is the opposite of his actual persona, his comment, basically paraphrasing, was, well, I've been reminded many times that this is a film and not a documentary. I didn't really like the portrayal of me. And I thought there were a lot of inaccuracies in the film. However, the public really seems to love the film. And who am I to argue with the public? And I was like, damn, sir, 
If anyone has any questions about your professionalism and demeanor as a person in general and discipline and discipline, all they have to hear is that answer. Because if someone's going to show me physically assaulting a dude, like doing all this shit that I never did that makes me look like I have really shitty character, I would have a serious problem with the people who did that. So that's a man who only gripes up. Exactly. And now he's so old that there's no one to gripe up to. Uh, Yeah. But kudos to Harry Smith because that was quite gracious it was it was i have one last thing that i remembered that i wanted to talk about let's hear it why was that girl there singing entertainers came out to like entertain the troops i know that and maybe somebody can enlighten me as to if this was actually the case in the circumstances surrounding the battle and if it is sure but why was it so prominent? Yeah, it's a USO. It's the equivalent of a USO. Yes, but they we spent a lot of time with her. Oh, th- that? To the point where I was expecting her helicopter to get blown up. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what I thought. I was like, why the fuck I was like, is- the only reason to have this much dialogue and this much time spent with this person is because she's going to get blown up in that helicopter when it leaves. Right, and then nope. Nope, she just flies away. I was like, why did we spend all this? I, I agree. I thought the exact same thing. Why did we spend time with this character beyond that initial scene where th- she has the little kiss with the guy? You don't even need that. I mean, like that you was don't need it, but like it's cute. You, you don't need it. And it like really I felt like distracted from and felt again like a lot of this movie kind of felt false and rang hollow. Mm-hmm. If this had been a movie that were made closer to the period, you wouldn't have had her be such a prominent role you would have maybe still had the performance and like, so that you could see people like getting up from the performance and the performers being confused by that. Yeah. Cause you have that little scene, but that's really all of that that you needed. You just know we're having a USO show. It's this lady. She's really cute. Uh, we all like it. Oh shit. We got to go. And then they decided to do like that whole scene with her flying away and then being escorted out. I was like, we don't need any of this. Do we know? Was this a, a, real thing that happened around the context of this battle like yes basically everything about that is accurate except for her interacting with those particular two soldiers which there's no record of and who knows who she may or may not have interacted with but in terms of the show happening and them getting pulled out uh, i believe yes that did really happen little patty amphlet was a 17 year old pop star in australia at the time Apparently, she was only number two in the Australian charts because of the Beatles. So she was a pretty big deal at the time. I don't know why that's where they decided to pump all their historical accuracy was into that scene. It's right, so but, weird. You know, and I and I get it. I was like, I hope this is again. I spent a lot of this m- movie going like, don't know if that's accurate. I kind of hope it is because otherwise I don't know why it's here. But like that was that was my vibe through through most of it. But I really didn't understand why we spent the amount of time focusing on her. But knowing that she was number two to the Beatles in Australia at the time, I guess that might just be for some Australian flair. She's still alive today. Like, and it's very well known, apparently. And I bet they didn't ask her about the movie either, who she did and didn't kiss. Yeah, And her backing group was called The Statesman, by the way. Interesting. But she was with Call, Call Joy, apparently, and the Joy Boys. But yeah, so I mean, like, that makes sense knowing that she's so big in Australia and this being an Australian film made ostensibly for pretty much an Australian audience. That would be like, 
if the Beatles were there at, you know, D-Day or what. Right. You know, that's, <laughs> sorry, just grab I'm grabbing at straws here. Just, you know, just like a famous battle. Famous battle we all know about. Like if the Beatles were there performing and then it got blown up. Yeah, you'd probably include that in your movie. But like, I don't know if you'd make it about the Beatles at the at the beach. Yeah, there's there are lots of pictures online. She's very well known for that. I think I did a Google search and little Patty, like first picture that shows up is of her performing on stage at that base. Although she was not wearing that outfit. Oh, the inaccuracies. Will they never stop? Right. She was wearing. Well, here's the thing. She was wearing a super cute 60s striped dress. Oh, very mod and very cute hair that they just did not. Yeah, this didn't feel like it was in the 60s at any point. Yeah. No, it doesn't. Except for when they rip off uh, the snuff or something. And now it's time for the breakdown, where we ask ourselves, what was the objective of this film? Was it on target? And did we like it? Katie. Hmm. Well, from everything I read, the objective of this film was to honor the vets who fought in it, try to depict their experience as realistically as possible, get audiences invested. I think that was also a big part of this, was trying to pull in the Australian audiences to recognize these men's heroism and what they went through. I really do think it's just that simple. I don't know that there's anything much beyond that because that's just kind of how the director talked about it whenever I read something by him. Certainly how the writer looked at it. Was it on target? Eh. Yes and no. I'm going to go with that. Yes and no. I mean, it certainly did bring awareness of this to the Australian public, as far as I could tell, despite its $2 million box office. It's done decently well on streaming across the world. It portrays the military aspect of things fairly accurately. This company went out and did X, Y, Z. You know, these APCs actually did go out and do this. These people who were in that spot had these names. You know, the very basics of it are accurate to what happened. The, the drama and all of the stuff that kind of fills in the cracks to keep us going throughout those military actions is all, or for the most part, made up. So in some ways, it is on target. It shows us what happened. But it's also not because it doesn't get to the spirit of what actually happened, if you will. Like, the facts are there, but not the heart of these individual men, which I think would have been the more interesting story is who were the people who actually went through this experience rather than who were these invented people that didn't actually go through this experience because they're not real. They just have real people's names. Did I like it? No, not really. I will never watch it again. I was I was really excited about it because I was like, oh, I really love Australian history. I would love to see, you know, I didn't know anything about their participation in Vietnam. And so that part of it, I did kind of like getting to see some representation of their activities. But it's just more disappointing than anything else that it was so to those actual people who went through all of that pain and suffering there wasn't a lot of truth and for me especially with these kinds of stories that's where 
it's really important to get it right is to portray these actual individuals who were there as well as we can. And since some of them were still alive and several others had, you know, done interviews and all of that, there could have been so much more accuracy or at least an attempt. Or they could have spent the time that they had building this unnecessary non-existent drama to expand the perspective. So I didn't care for the choices that they made. Sorry, guys. I really wanted to like it, but no dice. Liam? I think you're pretty spot on with the objective. I think that they intended this to honor the the people who were there in this battle and who died in the battle. But it wasn't on target and in a very specific way. Not to draw a comparison necessarily that makes them like, oh, they're a charity case. But like when you give something to a charity, you're like, oh, well, obviously they need this. But it's like, no, actually, we need this over here. We can't do fuck all with this. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, I'll do this for you. But no, not really. Like, it's like giving frozen food to the food bank. Yeah. or you know, That it's helps like, nobody. Yeah. During the Irish potato famine, all the crops were dead. And so for relief, the British government sent seeds to grow more crops. And it's like, yeah, but we're fucking starving now. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like that kind of thing. It's like you didn't you didn't ask. <laughs> you know, you were like, oh, I'll do this thing for you to show my appreciation. You're like the thing you did. It kind of sucks. But Thanks, I guess. <laughs> Harry Smith, probably. Probably. I agree. Yeah, that's kind of where it's at. Like, they, sure, maybe the, the heart was in the right place, but like, dude, you really just didn't do the thing that you wanted to do. You did the opposite thing in many cases. And you can kind of get away with that if it's a longer time ago. Like, if you're making a movie about George Washington and we don't have the conversations of George Washington. And you don't feel like pouring through like centuries old letters and diary entries to figure out how the man spoke. You can kind of just make George Washington say whatever. But then you have movies like this and uh, uh, like the, the Brian De Palma film, The Untouchables, where like Elliot Ness murders Frank Nitty by throwing him off of a Chicago city roof, like the courthouse roof. Like that didn't happen. That verifiably didn't happen. And it's just like weird shit like that that works its way into movies for me is bothersome. And I'm usually fairly suspect of movies that are like based on a true story. I would like to think that when you do it with a war movie, I should be able to wrap in that warm blanket of knowledge that this really happened. But even then, even with something that is not terribly long ago, you still can't trust that. So did I like it? A couple of things that I did appreciate. We talked about some of the effects I thought were pretty good. Had some pr some pretty nice shots, some pretty shots. So the cinematography wasn't bad, although I didn't like the frame rate. But I was really happy that we picked this name very specifically for our podcast. And I was happy to see that when we watched the movie, that for a long time we were getting questions about, like, is this just about the danger close movie like no it's not thank you it's about all war movies i was happy to see that the movie danger close actually had a scene in which it was used appropriately and we got to see that on film and i you don't really get to see somebody call in danger close and they did it twice Count 50. Danger close. Danger close. Fire for effect. 
Yeah, right there. Right there in front of me. They made the guacamole. <laughs> and, and so I appreciated that. But by and large, no. Truth be told, I didn't want to watch it the first time. <laughs> and I'm probably not going to watch it a second time. So, yeah, that's where I'm at. Just side note who's on first thing that happened to me with a couple of different friends where I was like talking about this movie. <laughs> oh man, Danger Close is just like terrible this and that, blah, blah, blah. And they're like, yeah, but so which movie? And I was like, Danger Close. And they're like, yeah, but what movie did you guys cover? And I was like, Danger Close. It's a movie from 2019. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Third base. Yes. I had a similar incident with my husband. He's like, and I was like, oh, I got to watch Danger Close. He's like, well, what movie are we watching for it? And I was like, Danger Close. <laughs> the eponymous war film. Oh, yeah, that's right. You're doing that movie, finally. I saved one one napalm bomb for my uh, for my breakdown, so here we go. <laughs> Expend all remaining ordnance. So, I, I didn't look into the objective from the horse's mouth, so I don't know what the director and the production intended. On the one hand, I feel like they wanted to shed light on a conflict that in Australia is famous but has maybe not had its proper due since when they started to work on this project. I think it was still 2008, so like the medals hadn't been corrected and stuff. So there might have been the sense that these people were still missing their due. And around the rest of the world is kind of a more unknown battle. I mean, I, I did not know about Long Tan until I found out about this film. Was it on target? In terms of sticking to the small unit, like outpost style kind of combat thing, I thought that that part of the movie was done well. You feel the pressure, you feel the threat. When someone gets hit with a 7.62 round in the chest, they're instantly dead and they drop on the ground and there's no fanfare about it. The squibs and the blood effects and any CGI they might have used to enhance that was, I thought, really well done. Cinematography, the smoke, the aerial shots, the explosions. Like, yeah, you know, you get nitpicky. There's a few little off things, the way some bodies are flying or whatever. But overall, you feel the pressure of this small unit really being in combat and being outmanned 20 to 1. And, you know, several times on the radio, you can hear people saying like, look, you either bring these APCs now or in 10 minutes, we're all dead anyways. It doesn't matter. So like you really feel that pressure and you see the difficulty of what it's like to be a leader in the field, in combat, having to turn all this theory and all this training into like real time decisions that are going to get people killed or not killed. And I felt all of that. So that second half of the movie and the depiction of the combat I thought was overall pretty good. Again, they fibbed a few things here and there, the timing, whatever, but overall that's not the least accurate part of the film. But like Liam says, if your goal was to give these men their due, again, some of whom still have families who are alive and some of them died in combat in this battle, then no, you did not do your job because to add to the drama, which I feel is unnecessary in a film about combat, both with, again, like I said before, the music, the slow motion, all that, the actual character choices that these characters make that make no sense. Harry Smith looks like a hard-headed, immature asshole 
who only knows how to make people fear him and doesn't actually know how to lead men properly and physically assaults his men. I talked about it before, but the lack of discipline, the insubordination, like none of those things actually happen in that way. And it really does a disservice to these men who, for all intents and purposes, were a formidable fighting unit. And part of the reason why they succeeded in this battle was because of their very good discipline and because of this very hardcore training that they did that was thanks to Major at the time, Smith, leading them. So for what they did well, I think they just destroy the point of it and it doesn't come across. And even worse, again, this is an entertaining movie. It's enjoyable to watch. It's not boring. You can have a decent time having a beer and watching this movie. But as much as I hated We Were Soldiers, at least they asked for people who were there at the event to be involved in the making of the film. And they didn't grossly misrepresent anyone. Again, I'm on the record about the problems that I had with this film, but while I enjoyed watching this film more, I hate it way more than I hated We Were Soldiers because of the disrespect with which it treats these characters and these men. And I don't think the director and writers realize that's what they were doing. I think it's very clear that they don't understand anything about good leadership especially military leadership. And to them, adding these moments of drama and tough guy, like throw this guy against the tent pole, etc., was just like, oh yeah, like this didn't happen, but it's good drama. It'll be good for the film. Not realizing that really at the same time, they were tarnishing the reputation of someone who would have never done that and who, for all accounts, acted professionally and may have been a hard ass the way many people are in the military, but did his job well and got the results that that type of leadership usually inspires from men that you command. And again, I felt bad for their families. The quintessential example is the only officer who died in this battle, Lieutenant Sharp, who is shown to be this asshole who's playing poker when the artillery strike comes in and the sergeant has to take over. Again, never happened. What is his family supposed to think when they see that? And they're like, oh yeah, my son died at age 21 in 1968 or whatever in this conflict. Let's go to the movies and see how they depict him. And then half of his depiction is to be this like immature idiot who has no idea what he's doing and is not competent. Or guys that are drinking on the job. Like again, all these things that didn't happen. So unnecessary drama for a film where there's plenty of real drama because of the stakes and because of what's going on and again crosses the line into disrespect in my opinion so clearly i did not like this movie for the reasons that i stated and i'll never watch it again and also to quote liam why do we still let travis Fimmel do shit <laughs> we need to stop casting Travis Fimmel and stuff. He needs to stay stick to like TV or something because that guy does not know what he's doing and he's not a good actor. He's shitty Channing Tatum. But if you add a bad writer on top of it, it is really a shit show. So <laughs> go watch the 2006 documentary, The Battle of Longtan. You can watch some great interviews. Again, I don't know if they somehow got recordings of the real radio calls or if they've just reenacted them really well, but not for a second did I not think they were real. You can hear the noise. You can hear the screaming. You can hear the terror in these guys' voices when they're making these calls back and forth for artillery. It sounds really real. And the dramatization scenes that they did in the documentary are really good. The documentary is 
far superior to this film and that is a great hour and 45 minutes of your time to see what really happened in this battle and what these men were really about instead of wasting your time with this fair enough i'm out dan brought his shit in pants today yes he did i don't know i thought that was a little even-handed <laughs> i can't help it liam i'm still gonna i know you're such balance. a mild-mannered soul <laughs> You're such a gentle person. I put on my waders and my rubber boots. I was ready to just wade through shit on this one. And then it came out with you just like, oh, well, I thought they did a really great job with this, 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 I this, still this, have this, to say this. the good stuff. <laughs> yeah. Look, once again, I know there are a lot of people maybe not listening to this anymore, but members of our <laughs> audience who really like this film and, and really love it. But honestly, we talked about this in The Longest Day and A Bridge Too Far. I've also learned that there is a certain part of the audience that... If there's good combat and the film is entertaining, that's what they're looking for. And they're like, you know what? This isn't a documentary. And if that's your jam, hey, I don't have a problem with that. Enjoy yourself. Harry Smith understands you. Yes. I just had to come to the defense of Harry Smith. What are we doing next time? Next time, guys, we've got a movie (laughs) from 1939. The Holy Grail year of 1939. I have this 1992 Nissan Sentra that you're just going to fucking love. And it's only got 300,000 miles on it. It's from the Holy Grail year of 1939. One of the unsung heroes of the year 1939. It's a fabulous film. It's one of my favorites. It's from Paramount Pictures. Stars Gary Cooper, Ray Milland, Robert Preston, Brian Donlevy. It's about three British brothers who all fall under suspicion for the theft of the same jewel. And one by one, they go out and they they run off to join the French Foreign Legion and end up fighting in the Sahara. It's Bo Jest. Woo! Gary Cooper. Gary Cooper playing a British man. (laughs) Also, the guy who wrote the book this is based on, Percival Christopher Wren. What a name. Love it. Yeah. I have that book on my shelf. Guys, I have a really surprising bit of information for you. This is my first Gary Cooper film ever. Holy shit. (laughs) It is not surprising to me. Oh, wait. I'm going to take out Liam's holy shit in this edit, and I'm going to go back to a couple episodes where Liam dropped the most perfect holy shit ever, and I'm going to drop it right (laughs) for the audience because it is the best. Holy shit. Yeah, use that as often as you can. Oh, I have been waiting for the opportunity. <laughs> awesome. But it's, uh, yeah, no, this that's great, actually. This is this is going to be... This is a good Gary Cooper. Fuck, this is going to be a great introduction for Gary Cooper for you. Also, Ray Milland, fabulous in it. A young Robert Preston, like way pre-Music Man Robert Preston, when he was like young and hot. Mm, yes, yes. Tasty treat. That. Snack Robert Preston. Clearly, I'm going to be getting an education because I don't know any of these films or any of these actors. You've never seen Music Man? Nope. Wow. Victor Victoria? Maybe. He was old by that point, but. Thanks, everyone, for joining us on Danger Close, the podcast, not the film. And if you want to join our Facebook group, we're at uh, Danger Close Podcast Discussion Group. And we do polls where you can get to pick every fifth film, as well as our Danger Close Enough Patreon is on there, where we cover War Jason stuff. Our last one was Aliens, another great gym camp from 1986. And uh, you can hear 
<laughs> you can hear Liam struggle through that one, but uh, it's a beloved and, and, and actual war film, even though it's sci-fi. So four bucks a month, you can join us there as well. Thanks to Katie and Liam and everyone who did the research, and we'll talk to you guys on the next one. Bye. Bye. Mum and Dad and Denny saw the passing out parade. Pakapanum. It was a long march from cadets. And the 6th Battalion was the next to tour. It was me who drew the card. We did Canungra and Shoalwater before we left. And Townsville lined the footpaths as we marched down to the quay. This clipping from the paper shows us young and strong and clean. And there's me and me slouch hat with me SLR and greens. God help me. I was only 19. From Vungtel, Pride and Chinooks to the dust at Newydad. I'd been in and out of choppers now for months And we made our tents a home VB and pinups On the lockers and an Asian orange sunset through the scrub